Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. From the SETI Institute in Mountain View. How are you, Seth? Well, I'm uh, possibly okay. I think I'm all right. Still above ground. That's what people tell me is the correct answer. Yeah, I always say, you know, people say, oh, it's my birthday. And I'm like, well, another year older, but I guess it's better than the alternative of not getting older. Uh, you're perennially ju- uh, you know, juvenile, but in a good sense, youthful. Seth, you never seem to age. It must be studying, you know, the billions of year old co- cosmos that you and I both study. Uh, it's always a treat to be with you, and I thank you. This is Alien Week on the Into the Impossible podcast. Yesterday we had on Mick West, uh, noted uh, debunker or classifier of, uh, of unidentified alien phenomena or unidentified flying phenomena and i made made note today on twitter that he got his start uh he was a video game designer and he started off by making a tony hawk's uh, video game which uh, has to do with an identified flying object have you ever seen tony hawk he like hovers in space and like orbits and and rotates around so that's pretty cool and uh i thought we'd talk a little bit about it because you know in the news lately are all these uh phenomena have to do with with uh, with potential alien techno signatures in the form of of UFOs, and I'm hoping to have on some of the uh, some of the uh, pilots of various military aircraft that have come to uh, to be uh, featured in 60 Minutes and other fora, uh, and uh, and hopefully we'll get some of your feedback on it. So, have you had a chance to see any of the the, the footage from from these uh, military? Uh, infrared cameras or any of the other uh, eyewitness accounts? Have you followed any of that, Seth? Well, I have looked at the uh, the better-known videos. Maybe they're the only ones, at least three different, maybe four different ones. Several made with these FLIR, F-L-I-R, which means, you know, forward-looking infrared cameras, uh, you know, rotating tic-tacs and stuff like that, things setting over or settling into the ocean. Yeah, there there are some, you know, ones that are more credible than others. I, I tend to think I'm a pilot. You remember you you met me at the airport once I flew a little plane up there and, and when I spoke at the SETI Institute. And one of the things I, you know, kind of have, have thought about is, you know, has anyone looked at the simulation not of the of the UFOs, but of actually the pilots and what they would have experienced from inside of a of a high performance jet vehicle capable of almost Mach two speeds? They're not designed to go super slow, and they're not designed to, you know, cruise very low over the ocean. But I want to point out that in your book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, I love this book. I read it. I listened to it. I read it in Kindle. I think I have a signed copy by you, too. It could um, be. All these things. It's now a collector's item. One of the editions, the, the so-called collector's item edition on Amazon is like $500, as is one of Mick West's books, so that's pretty cool. But anyway, um, you talk about what would be the implications if true. So first thing I hear, Seth, a lot, why are they visiting us now? And so what you've said in the book, and I want you to elaborate on it, one reason purported by uh, people that are enthusiasts about the alien actually explanation is that they see our path as one of heading towards destruction. They see the blast of nuclear uh, detonations in the 50s, 60s, etc. And they see us on a path towards destruction and they come to save us in a certain sense. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, you know, one could argue at length that the aliens probably don't care what we do to ourselves any more than I care what the mosquitoes outside this building are doing. Uh, Maybe they're doing things that are not in their best interest, but I'm not going to go out there and try and save them. So you could argue that, but that's an argument about alien sociology, right? And we don't know much about that. So 
Well, what I would say is this, just so to just stick with the physics. Uh, yeah, maybe they've seen our nuclear tests and they go back to 1945, right? I mean, it turns out that it's a lot harder to find somebody's nuclear test than it is to find their radars because the radars are on 24-7. The nuclear tests are over pretty quickly. But, you know, leave all that out. Maybe they, they did see the uh, detonations beginning in 1945, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Nevada, all the places where we set off atomic bombs. Maybe they did. Let's assume. So that means 1945, since 1945, 55, 65, 75, 70, 76 years ago. All right. So it's just going out into this information. The flashes are going out into space at the speed of light. And they hit a planet where there's some Klingons on there. And they say, well, oh my God, you know, these guys have nuclear weapons. we got to do something about it. Sure, it's going to cost 70 trillion zillion galactic cruceros to do it. But we're going to do it. Right. Okay, so what they're going to do is they're going to send some saucers to Earth to fly around. I, I, as far as I can tell, they haven't done anything when, with regard to our nuclear capabilities. But let's say that they just decided to do that. Well, okay, their spacecraft can't go faster than the speed of light. That's the limit. So let's assume they go at the speed of light, right? 76 years uh, to for them to uh, get the information, another 76 years to get back here or whatever. Uh, it's that wouldn't work because we wouldn't see them yet. But what if they were half that far away? Instead of 76 years, right, they were uh, 38 light years away, right? So, all right, the bombs go off 38 light, uh, sorry, 38 years later, they see the flash, they make a quick decision, we're going to intervene, and it takes them 38 years to get here at best, mm. right? So that means they have to be within 38 light years of us. And the total number of stars within 38 light years is... Yeah, well, it's a few thousands, a few tens of thousands. That's a small number in astronomy. And the chances that there's some, you know, civilization with these capabilities within that distance strike me as rather small. So I think it's remarkable that they're here. And it's the argument is even stronger if you go back to, you know, sightings seen in the late 40s or early 50s. And it becomes almost impossible for them to be here on the basis of anything they might know about uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're coming here for exploitation of some resources that they might need or that they might want to extract from us in, in some sort of conserved quantity that they might lack. Is there any reason to expect that aliens might have, we might have something that aliens want, perhaps a Kardashian or two? Yeah, well, well if they took them, I mean, I'd, I'm not sure my life would be altered greatly. But, uh, you know, I've been on panels where we discuss what what do we have to offer the aliens? In the movies, it's often water. But that's kind of a stupid thing for them to come here to get because water, you know, what does it mean? Weighs 65 pounds per square or per cubic foot or whatever. Water is very dense. It's, it's heavy and it's expensive to get it. And the facts are the universe is chock-a-block with water because water is H2O. Now, hydrogen is three-quarters of the universe by weight, so there's plenty of hydrogen out there. And oxygen is the third most common uh, element in the universe. So H2O is everywhere. We find it everywhere in the solar system. It's going to be everywhere in their solar system. They're not going to come here for water any more than I'm going to you know, walk to Tibet to get lunch. I can get lunch a lot more easily than walking to Tibet. So, and, and these panels kind of discuss, uh, kind of came to the conclusion that it was actually nothing in terms of resources that they could find here, that they couldn't find much, much nearby their home planet. So that doesn't make sense. Uh, they might come here to uh, breed with us. That's a frequent theme. It's a frequent theme because, you know, it's something that scares people, and that's why 
it's often offered is what the aliens are here to do, but it wouldn't work. You know, it wouldn't work any more than you could, you know, uh, kidnap a, a roach from your garage and, and breed with it. You're not going to be able to do that. And it's going to be uncomfortable. So that's that's not a reasonable uh, scenario for them coming here. There's essentially nothing. We have culture that they might be interested in. You know, they like uh, what they find in the art museums and so forth. They don't have exactly that. They might take that. Or maybe they're just here as explorers. You know, they just want to know what's in the galaxy. That's fair enough. But then why now? And finally, they might uh, 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 just be coming here to proselytize. They want to convert us to the galactic church. That's something that's certainly incentivized a lot of our exploration. Mm -hmm. Now, some say that's exactly what we'd expect you to say because the SETI Institute is not prepared, even if this uh, were to be true, uh, because you are used to searching for electromagnetic signals, which is kind of uh, your, your grandmother's type of technology. You're not used to searching for techno signatures, the type that uh, Avi Loeb, past guest on the Into the Impossible podcast, has spoken about. Um, what do you say? Is there a protocol? Let's say this turns out to be actually what it is depicted by many of the proponents of the alien uh, visitation hypotheses. Uh, is there a protocol or are we basically going to start, you know, kind of, uh, you know, building the building the roadmap as uh, as they introduce themselves for dinner? Yeah, well, I think so. I think the latter. Uh, I have been asked, I don't know how many times, does the Pentagon have some sort of protocol, if you like that term, for dealing with, uh, you know, visitors from outer space? I don't know what's in the depths of the Pentagon. I've been in the Pentagon many times, actually, because I lived two miles from it, and my father worked for the Navy, and as a consequence, I used to go over to the Pentagon to uh, use the swimming pool, that kind of thing. But that doesn't tell you what they're doing there. I don't know what they're doing there, but I doubt that there's a protocol because, in fact, it's just a very simple argument. If they can come here, it, it doesn't matter what your protocol is. Whatever they want to do, they can do it because they have the technology to do things that are centuries away, if not farther for us. So it, it's, uh, you know, a bit silly. It would be like the uh, the Native Americans on Watling Island in the Caribbean in 1492. Do they have a protocol in case some Spanish ships come over the horizon? I, I don't think they did. They didn't anticipate it. But in any case, if they did have a protocol, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the, these guys get out of the ship and they look at them and they, you know, uh, try and talk at one another and neither one can understand the other and so forth. So I, I doubt that there's a protocol, but it doesn't matter if there is. The only protocol that would uh, work is maybe to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, some of the research that's done at the SETI Institute, which I urge folks to support, as I do, I have a long-term donor, um, not only a client, I'm also a member, uh, but the SETI Institute has done pioneering work on what's called extremophiles and so forth. We used to think that, you know, life was very chauvinistically, would have to look like us. On the cover of your book is a three-fingered, one-thumbed, four-digited uh, alien finger, you know, kind of handprint. Um, we don't now think that aliens or even life has to look very much like us. Talk about the research that your colleagues have done at the SETI Institute on extremophiles that suggest that life could survive radiation-hardened environments, uh, deep-sea environments, acidic environments. Talk about how life finds a way, as Dr. Jeff Goldblum described in Jurassic Park. Yes, well, Jeff had that line written for him. Well, uh, indeed, <laughs> life is tough. No I mean, spoilers, come it, on. So. 
it's not it's not much of a spoiler. Uh, you know, once you get life started, it's very hard to stop it. I mean, you think of what's happened on the Earth. Of course, there were the ice ages. Oh, yeah, there was that big rock that landed 66 million years ago in the Mexican Yucatan and, you know, wiped out the dinos and essentially three-fourths of everything else. You know, that, that was a bad day. Uh, we've had snowball Earth episodes at least once where the whole planet is covered in ice and so forth. None of this is, has has stopped life. Yeah, it, it slows it down. You know, uh, you you lose <laughs> you lose those big sauropods with their big teeth. Yeah, yeah, but life goes on. So that's a, a very obvious demonstration of the fact that once you get life started, it, it you know it just spreads around and it just fills all the niches that it can, and it's very hard to get rid of. So I uh, you know I I think the real question is not. Can life survive? And that's uh, the study of extremophiles. You know, you find bacteria in the fuel tanks of jet liners and stuff like that. Uh, it isn't whether they can survive. The real question is, can you get it started in the first place? Because if you don't do that, it doesn't matter whether it could have survived. The question is, how do you get life started? And that's that's a difficult subject because the uh, evidence is always uh, very, very tenuous because, you know, single-cell organisms don't make great fossils. So... We don't know how that happens. And, you know, we, we're interested, for example, in, you know, finding life on Mars. And everybody knows about the Perseverance rover uh, rolling around the landscapes of, the, of our little ruddy buddy out there, you know, trying to find evidence for life. And it might do so or it might not do so. You should ask yourself, what happens if it doesn't find life, right? That there was once bacterial life on, on Mars. That would be a big downer. Because if we find it, we can say, okay, well, at least it looks like getting biology started isn't so hard. Mm. And, yeah, exactly. I want to look at that. You know, people talk about all finding evidence of water. Actually, just today there was an announcement of uh, two missions to go to Venus. And I've had uh, Sarah Seeger on the podcast, um, hoping to have uh, Jane Greaves, uh, authors of Venus, uh, Phosphine Discovery. What have you made about that? We haven't spoken since those discoveries were announced uh, late last year. Um, does that uh, does, does that obviously the NASA missions were long in the planning? They're they're not just sort of uh, responding to you know, late late last year's news. Although that would not be a, a bad reason to to develop the mission. Uh, NASA is less kind of reactionary than that. But what do you make of the possibility of life on Venus as an extremophile or as a uh, different modality to look for missions to go to Mars? What do you make of these missions? Are they even looking for life? First of all. Well, I think that they, they are, at least one of them is, because they're looking for this phosphine, this gas that was found in the atmosphere of Venus at an altitude, you know, like uh, 20 miles up or something like that, where the temperatures are, you know, com completely comparable to the te uh, temperatures in Austin, Texas. I mean, they're very, you know, they're okay. They can, <laughs> they can support life. And the phosphine gas itself was a clue because phosphine is, is a hard gas to make, or at least it's not made frequently by many reactions in volcanoes. Volcanoes make phosphine and bacteria make phosphine. So if there's phosphine there, the question is, well, where did it come from? It could come from volcanoes, but if you just do the numbers, it turns out you'd need to have Venus completely pockmarked with volcanoes, active volcanoes, in order to account for the phosphine. That doesn't seem to be the case. And the other possibility is it was made by bacteria floating in the in the upper atmosphere of Venus, where the temperatures are salubrious, salubrious and so forth, uh, that's extremely enticing because that shows you an example of where life got started, where the conditions were really horrid, but it still got started somehow. Well, it, for me, the problem is that the detection of phosphine, I think, is somewhat 
tenuous because it involved uh, some spectral work, radio spectral work, and they they fitted a ninth order polynomial or something to the spectrum. And I, I've done a lot of that sort of research, and you never fit a ninth order polynomial to any uh, any spectrum that you've obtained uh, with a radio telescope because you can fit anything. So anyhow, as I, I think the thing is, NASA decided to go Venus, to Venus because Venus has been a kind of, uh, you know, in the background here for a long time. It's been Mars, 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 and more Mars. And now there are two things going to Venus. It's a tough environment. It's hot there, but doggone it. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, if it can cruise around in the clouds of Venus, it could add a nice blurb to NASA's resume. A question that you and I talked about earlier in a recorded interview that we did for later retransmission on the same Into the Impossible Network station. A reminder, I'm talking to uh, Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute in Northern California, a good friend of the show and a host of the Big Picture Science podcast and radio show. And you should all subscribe to that as well and follow him on Twitter and other social media outlets. We were talking earlier about, you know, why use electromagnetism at all as a search for, uh, as a search modality. And people are asking that as well uh, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the chat as, as we speak. So you want to talk a little bit about that. We, we did discuss that earlier today, but for the benefit of the audience members who uh, aren't uh, able to travel back in time with us, uh, is it possible to, you know, that we're too kind of uh, recency focused? You know, there's this primacy recency bias that human beings have that the most recent thing that we encounter, we're going to fixate and sink all of our resources into. Uh, might it be that we should think other ways of, of, of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence other than the shiny newest thing that we just invented? Well, you know, that's an, uh, an enticing thought, right, that we're too anthropocentric, we're too fixated on the technology of the day. And the technology of the day, and when I say day, I mean the last maybe century or something, is uh, electromagnetic radiation. In other words, radio waves, lasers, anything like that. And uh, you could say, well, maybe, you know, 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, we'll look back and think, oh, that's so quaint. They were using this, you know, this silly technology of the time to find the aliens. And meanwhile, they're on, uh, you know, some other transformational, I don't know, I can't even remember uh, the, the terms that are used in science fiction for these communication modes that go faster than the speed of light. There is no such communication mode as far as we tachyonic. As far as we know, well, tachyons, yes. A lot of people seem to think that quantum entanglement would uh, allow instantaneous communication, but that's a misunderstanding of quantum entanglement. It doesn't actually allow that. But be that as it may, you go with, with the, you go with the science you have. So that explains why all these experiments are always using, if you will, the trendy science of the day because. You know, that's the best science they've got. And and I think that that applies here. Mm -hmm. Very good. So another question uh, that I'm getting is, you know, if they had advanced uh, technology that could potentially, you know, outdo our technology, et cetera, traveling uh, throughout the galaxy, perhaps, uh, that, you know, as they would travel, wouldn't they encounter many, many hazards along the way? You know, we think about uh, the uh, Star Wars, you know, kind of the, the warp drives, the Star Trek, Star Wars. Uh, but aren't there other hazards of interstellar travel, even if they could master warp drive and handle that, that very, very perilous deceleration phase at the very end? Uh, are there other hazards, aren't there other hazards, rather, from just basic physical principles that they would have to face uh, along their journey at close to the speed of light? 
Well, if they're going, you know, <laughs> with the physics we know, which it says is to say they're not going quite the speed of light, let alone, you know, three times the speed of light, whatever, uh, then they're moving through space very fast. And you could say, well, so what? I mean, space is empty, and it is largely empty, but it's not entirely empty. Uh, there's, there's what's called interstellar material in space, and even in the, you know, the, the, the most unappealing, the deserts, if you will, of, of the Milky Way, you still have at least one particle per cubic centimeter, right? There are always particles of hydrogen, if you will, particles. They're just atoms of hydrogen. And normally they wouldn't bother you. They don't bother me. I don't disturb my sleep or anything. So what would these, uh, you know, atoms of hydrogen, they're actually little molecules of two ad uh, atoms of hydrogen, you know, and they hit the spacecraft at 99.9% .9 the speed of light or whatever, and they're going to punch through the uh, the skin of the spacecraft, punch through you, and you know disrupt the cells in your body, and you probably just kill yourself. So uh, there are hazards of going through space at very high speed. And the mitigation for that, uh, according to your most recent guest uh, on the show, or at least at the institute, Michio Kaku su suggests that. There'd be no reason for physical entities for aliens to travel at all whatsoever. In fact, there'd be uh, just a digital code, an avatar, uh, that you would be beamed literally, but only in digital code. A clone Seth would be traversing, traipsing about the galaxy. Uh, what do you make of that uh, as, a, as a prospect? And perhaps now we're back to electromagnetic formula, uh, formulations of extraterrestrial intelligence as a detectable signature. Yeah, well, I think it makes sense in some, you know, to, to some degree. I mean, you know, the number of base pairs in your DNA, in other words, the information in your DNA would fit on a CD. You don't even need a DVD, just a CD, right? Oh, well, so, that's, uh, so, sorry, I use Betamax, damn it. Uh, yeah, well, that's too bad, but you, you're probably not recording your entire uh, genome, but you could fit that onto a CD. So it's not a lot of information. You could broadcast it into space, you know, in the course of minutes. So why send the baryons when you can? <laughs> why just send the? Why don't you just send the information? If somebody across the country has a book that uh, they want me to read, they could mail the book, or they could send me a PDF file, if you will, right? And, they, and by doing that, it gets to me much more quickly and at lower cost to everybody involved. So uh, I think what uh, Professor Kaku was saying is that you know, we won't build rockets to go into space. We'll just send the information. Now, you could take that CD of Brian Keating, right, and, you know, your DNA, and just send that to some other place and say, well, now, you know, Brian's going into space at the speed of light, which he would be, but it does presume that at the other end, at the alien end, that they can do something with that sequence of your DNA. Do they know what to do with it? Do they know that, okay, so now I need a, a, a you know, a phosphorus atom here and a nitrogen atom there and so forth and so on. Could, could they reconstruct it at the other end? Maybe not. I mean, I don't know how clever they are, but they might not be able to do that. They might not be able to figure it out. And if they did, even if they did, what they would end up with is Brian Keating's genome. And, uh, you know, they'd culture that on a Petri disc. And then they would get Brian Keating as he was when he was born with essentially no information. They would miss the college education. I mean, question from Scott Brown, ITF. In the flesh. I don't know what that stands for. Uh, uh, he asked, does Seth feel that the idea of an advanced race of beings or life forms observing and interacting with, hum with humans is completely impossible? And if so, why? Well, I don't think it's completely impossible, but it's, you know, it's not going to be like it is on TV where they just sort of stand in front of you and, 
you know, talk to you in, in, in perfect colloquial American English. They don't even have British accents. Always wondered about that. But in any case, yeah, I, I think we could interact at, at a certain minimum level of IQ, if you will. I mean, I can't interact, for example, with the the hummingbirds in my backyard very well. And I walk out there and they know I'm there. They've, they've seen me. They sense my presence. And I sense theirs because they immediately begin to uh, defending their territory, which usually includes my entire backyard. Uh, I, I, you know, they didn't pay that mortgage. But in any case, there's some level of interaction always possible. Uh, but in terms of communication, that takes a little bit longer. I think if they had any interest in that, uh, they would, you know, give us a picture dictionary or something like that, and maybe we could find some com common, you know, denominator, if you will, in language. But language is already something that's slightly anthropocentric. So uh, I don't know, but I, I cannot imagine that we'd find some other creatures and couldn't uh, communicate with them in some ways. I mean, you know, we understand a little bit about dolphins are doing when they come up and ask for another fish. So I think at some level you, you might be able to, to uh, communicate. What do you make of uh, Professor Adam Frank's suggestion that uh, one way to look for uh, this uh, civilization of, uh, you know, is by looking for a techno signature in the form of uh, atmospheric chemistry changes via uh, terraforming, global warming, atmospheric chemistry, methane signatures, et cetera. What do you make of that hypothesis? Well, I mean, that's certainly interesting. I actually have a paper that's in Astrobiology Magazine, I think in January. Anyhow, when I say that actually maybe a better way to do SETI is to indeed look for artifacts, because then the aliens don't have to be alive now. It's like, I think I'm making analogies, like finding the pharaohs of Egypt. Very hard to do. I mean, they are there. They've just been moved to a new museum, but they're just lying in a box, not making much noise. So it's, it's maybe less than satisfying, but at least you could find the pharaohs in, in a sense. But a better way would just be to go to the outskirts uh, on the west side of Cairo, and you'd find these big pointy buildings. And you say, well, I, you know, the pharaohs built this uh, thousands of years ago, and so this is good evidence. I mean, I, I think you could do that, but the idea that you could find, for example, uh, hydrofluorocarbons in our atmosphere because of hairspray or whatever, uh, and it's something that doesn't belong in our atmosphere, and they would do spectral analysis and, and find that stuff. I, I think that's maybe a little too simple because actually how long were the fluorocarbons in our atmosphere? You know, it, it was recognized as a problem was destroying the ozone, and they were you know, that, that problem was solved within a few decades mm. at most. So most of the things that are in our atmosphere that would indicate that we are here, things that we're responsible for in the atmosphere, are very short-lived, right? Even global warming, all that CO2, right? The, the, the hope is that we will solve that problem within, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, whatever. And so the fraction of time that a planet would have these kinds of signatures in its atmosphere strikes me as fairly fairly low. Mm -hmm. So uh, Cryptolicious, <clears throat> which was the name I was going to choose for my second born child, uh, is asking, uh, Seth, you have unlimited funds. Let, let's not make it unlimited because I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. But let, let's say you have uh, uh, 2x the Allen Telescope Array funds. Uh, you have uh, one new project that you can spend it on. Only one. You can't develop an endowment for the the Seth Shostak uh, library wing and uh, endowed uh, endowed uh, hovercraft. You have one project. What do you spend it on? Well, uh, if it's just twice what was spent to build the Allen Telescope Array, then I would use that money to build the Allen Telescope Array. I would I would finish it. The original design had 350 antennas. In fact, we have 42. 
and with 350 antennas, it's it's actually a qualitative change in what it could do. So if you're talking about that order of magnitude, that's you know under 100 million dollars. So with that order of magnitude, that's what I would do. If you really had unlimited funds, if that's really the question, uh, you know you'd put uh, you'd put some sensitive radio telescopes on the backside of the moon, the side we don't see from Earth, because that would be shielded from all the interference here on our home planet. And, uh, you know, it'd be radio quiet and you'd have a much better chance of finding something. Hmm. My uh, first guest on the Into the Impossible podcast uh, was my late great friend Freeman Dyson. And uh, Starduster is asking, how would you go about searching for a Dyson sphere? I think that's a cool question. Yeah. Well, a warm question, actually. Uh, it's uh, it's it's actually been done many times. People have tried this and they've looked, people have looked for, if you will, uh, Dyson spheres in the galaxy. In other words, and for those who don't know what a Dyson sphere is, it's just you, know, you say if you really want to solve the energy problem, what you do is you take a part of a planet that's not so useful to you like Neptune and you just rebuild it as a shell around the Earth, way beyond the orbit of the Earth so you don't interfere with the Earth. And uh, you just align it with uh, solar cells that, you know, turn the sun's energy into, well, electrical energy, and you just, you know, radio that back to Earth. So now you have all the energy you can possibly use, much more than you can possibly use. And, uh, you know, there are no emissions and no waste products, no pile of ash at the other side of the boiler. I mean, you know, and so Dyson said that this is what advanced societies would do. And these things are, in principle, detectable because the outside of these things always emit some infrared. And people have looked for infrared in, uh, you know, in surveys of the Milky Way. And, and they find a few things. The trouble is that infrared is produced in many star systems because of dust. So it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's see, we have more questions coming in from, uh, do you believe that uh, intelligence is an evolutionary advantage or a disadvantage? And do we expect it to be rare or common outside of Earth? I guess that's predicated on a prior of whether or not you think life is common outside of the Earth or not. Well, I mean, I, th I think that it is a somewhat different question than saying, you know, is a biology going to be common? I mean, we could answer that if we found any evidence for a previous biology on, on Mars, but it, it's rather doubtful that there was ever intelligence on Mars, <laughs> although maybe Elon Musk will change that soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very legitimate question, actually, and it's one that uh, the, for which the answer is not very clear. You could say that nature's not interested in intelligence, right? We've had life on this planet for four billion years, roughly, and for almost all of that, none of the life was very clever, <laughs> right? Never building anything, no technology, no smelting of metals, any of that. Mm -hmm. right. So nature's not interested in intelligence. And, and that's a thesis you can prove to yourself by walking around your neighborhood. Nature's not interested in intelligence, but it is interested in survival. So if intelligence increases your chances of survival, then, you know, nature will go along. And that's what's happened. I mean, obviously, humans have come to dominate the planet. And, uh, you know, our simian friends and ancestors, they're, they're pretty clever compared to most life on Earth. Uh, and there are other, I mean, crows are pretty clever and dolphins are pretty clever and so forth. So it looks like nature does keep trying, or it doesn't try, but it allows the evolution of intelligence in species. And if it turns out to pay off, then it, it keeps making that. So I think that intelligence might be very, very common, but there's no proof of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to ask yourself, if the dinos hadn't been wiped out 66 million years ago, there would still be dinosaurs here, and they, they weren't really all that smart. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. We've got um, right uh, looking out uh, further. So I don't think you commented very much on uh, Oumuamua uh, lately. Is that something we can discuss? There's some interest in that from some of my listeners. Is Oumuamua credible? Is it more likely that it comes from a techno as a techno signature or a naturally occurring? A phenomenon within our solar system or an exosolar system as a uh, icy body or something like that. And then I'll have a follow-up about icy bodies later. Okay. Actually, I'm supposed to be in another meeting at this point, oh. so I may have to pop <laughs> out. But let me, let me just say this. Amu Amu, uh, you know, Alvi Loeb at Harvard, after all, this is, he's a very smart guy, uh, has said that uh, Amu Amu might be a solar sail or some remnant from somebody else's solar system. It's clear that it comes from somebody else's solar system. What's not clear is that it's some sort of manufactured item. And we'll never know because a Muamu was seen when it was already on its way out of the solar system. And, uh, you know, it was only seen as a dot, one pixel in the camera. So pretty hard to say what it was. And actually the colors of this thing, and you could measure the colors, were very consistent with it being an asteroid. So I think most people in the uh, research community think that's what it was. But you have to say, gee, that's pretty lucky. You know, somebody throws a rock into space and it comes right into our solar system uh, as closely as it did. It just, you know, wheeled around the sun and headed on out. And the chances of that happening are very small unless there are a lot of these rocks. And I think the answer to a muamua will become clear if we, in fact, find more rocks. And we're beginning to do that. All right, so the last question, if you'll indulge me, Seth, is a follow-up to that. So obvious said that there'll be many of these discovered with Vera Rubin, space, uh, Vera Rubin Observatory and that we should send CubeSats to go do it. And I said, well, it'd be great you know, if you knew a billionaire who happens to want to send you know, spacecraft to Proxima Centauri, just get them to send the money to go chase after Oumuamua, catch up to it pretty quickly. Do you think we should be spending money to chase after these potential techno-signatures or spend more money observing them with upcoming obser astronomical observatories? Well, the, the, the latter, to just keep an eye out, is not anything that costs money because we're doing it anyhow. I mean, it costs money, but that money is there. If you were to go to somebody like Gary uh, Milner, indeed, and, and ask for money to catch up with Oumuamua, I, I'm not sure that's actually worthwhile. I mean, it's very unlikely that if Oumuamua was, you know, deliberately sent this way, that it's the last thing to be deliberately sent this way. You have to ask yourself, we finally had a telescope there on the, uh, on the island of Hawaii that could find something like Oumuamua, and it found it within a year or two of opening up. So if there's only one of them, that's a tremendous coincidence in time. So I think, uh, you know, it's very hard to build a rocket to catch up with the moon. None of our rockets could. You'd have to build a whole loom rocket. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think you do better to spend the money on observations. That's right. Well, Seth, I know you have to go. Thank you for being so generous. I point out I have another interview with Seth we recorded earlier. That'll be out. Tune in. Subscribe to Seth's podcast, Big Picture Science, and the SETI Institute YouTube channel is available. Subscribe. Donate to the SETI Institute as I do. Seth, I want to thank you so much. I'll stick around, answer a couple more comments and questions from my audience. Love uh, talking to you, Seth, as always. Have a wonderful day. Say hi to Jill Tarter and Frank Drake, and hopefully we'll get you back on soon. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.